Welcome to the Living to Thrive with Cancer podcast, a podcast about the big and little issues that come with living with cancer. I'm Catherine White, a stage four colon cancer thriver, passionate about supporting others who have faced a cancer diagnosis and are looking to feel empowered in taking back control of their health and happiness. My own health scare helped me to learn more about myself and how to live with cancer, and it led me to become a cancer support coach so I can help others through the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and all the crazy things that come with life with cancer. So let's get started. Welcome to episode 2.8 of the Living to Thrive with Cancer podcast. In today's episode, I am talking with Dr. Lynn O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor's passion and dedication to promoting a healthy lifestyle drives her work alongside her patients to help them achieve this goal. Dr. O'Connor also shares her knowledge to form a better community of medical protocols and practices. She has given hope and inspiration to her colleagues while also empowering her patients and educating the public. Most recently, Dr. O'Connor has been named Section Chief of Colon and Rectal Surgery at Mercy Medical Center and St. Joseph Hospital in New York. The well-being and health of my patients is of paramount importance to me, she says. Both hospitals have a long-standing tradition of administering quality health care, and I am proud to be part of a health system that embodies the shared values of patient-centered care and service to the surrounding community. Along with helping her patients, Dr. O'Connor is a noted lecturer, speaking nationally on advanced techniques related to minimally invasive colorectal surgery, colon cancer screening, and colorectal health. She has published multimedia and peer-reviewed journal articles and has been featured in many media outlets, including NBC News, SiriusXM, TodayShow.com, and Men's Health Magazine. Dr. O'Connor has an impressive background and education in her field. She earned her master's degree in public health at Yale University and her medical degree from Temple University School of Medicine. She completed her general surgery residency at Union Memorial Hospital in Maryland, followed by a fellowship in radiation oncology at John Hopkins Hospital. She culminated her training by completing a fellowship in colon and rectal surgery at the Georgia Colon and Rectal Surgical Clinic in Atlanta. Her bachelor's degree is in biology from Rutgers University. Dr. O'Connor takes a holistic approach to treating her patients. When people come to me with concerns, we discuss their stressors, their exercise regime, and their diet, says Dr. O'Connor. Often by doing this, we can isolate what is really going on, or at least what could be contributing to their discomfort. It is truly a comprehensive approach. Dr. O'Connor has excelled in academia and garnered many honors and awards, making her an influential leader in colon and rectal surgery. Some highlights include earning the Temple University Award for Outstanding Leadership, Achievement and Service, the Florence Griffith Friedman Award for Cancer Research, and being named a recipient of the Most Outstanding Achievement Award in Research at Union Memorial Hospital. She's featured in the renowned publication, The Leading Physicians of the World. At Colon and Rectal Surgery of New York, her goal is to continue to support her patients and empower them to live healthy lives. This is a place where people can come for their colon and rectal health, she says. My patients have direct access to me. Patients can expect a caring, compassionate, and knowledgeable one-on-one consultation and examination. I understand my patients may be nervous or even embarrassed when they come to see me, so I work to ensure they are comfortable and have a clear understanding of what's going to happen while they are here and how we can help. Dr. O'Connor, I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here and thank you for having me. 
You are truly an expert in the area that is very near and dear to me. As I, we were sharing before we started, I'm a stage four colon cancer thriver. And so um, I am excited to hear what you have to say today. We have some really great questions lined up for you. And you know what? I love that right off the bat, a stage four colon cancer thriver. I love that. That is that, you know what? The attitude and the mindset, I believe, goes so far especially when patients are dealing with this, when they're diagnosed and how they um, face treatment and how they face, you know, all of the challenges that come along with such a diagnosis, that mindset really can carry them through. And I, I honestly believe it makes a difference. You can see the difference in people when they have that positive mindset. I could not agree more. It really has been like my anchor in getting through this and really believing that every day is 100% and that just, you know, every day is a gift and keep moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I am really um, curious to, to ask you these great questions that we've put together because I think that the listeners are going to want to know really where you are in the whole, your position around colon cancer and research and, and how you work with your patients. So the first thing I'd like to, to have you discuss is the symptoms that people should be aware of when it comes to colon cancer, because it's that, it's that sneaky one sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. And you know what, that's an excellent question, because when you talk about symptoms, we really want to get to the point where people are screened and there are no symptoms because when you start to have symptoms, that's when you may have advanced disease. So the whole purpose of screening colonoscopies is to screen people and remove a polyp before it becomes a cancer or find a cancer early on before you have symptoms. But if you are experiencing symptoms, some of the common ones that we see patients have when it comes to colorectal cancer are specifically rectal bleeding. When you're having rectal bleeding, because some people think, oh, rectal bleeding is simply because of hemorrhoids. Mm -hmm. Hemorrhoids are, you know, can bleed, but any kind of rectal bleeding is abnormal. There is no definition of normal rectal bleeding. Anytime you're bleeding from the rectum, it's abnormal. So rectal bleeding, change in bowel habits, where you notice you mostly would move your bowels every day, you start to become constipated, you're moving every two days, every three days, it's more difficult to get the stool out, change in the color of the stool, the character of the stool, the frequency of the stool, the size of the stool, all of those changes are something that we consider um, symptoms. Weight loss, because when you are, um, constipated, you're maybe blocked, you can't get the stool through because there's a cancer there, then you're not going to want to eat. So, and then that's early satiety where you get kind of full pretty, pretty early. So those are some of the main things that we're looking at is change in bowel habits, weight loss, abdominal pain, um, early satiety, rectal bleeding. Those are the bells and whistles that come off. And really anything that's out of your normal is, is something that you need to get evaluated. Mm. That's such a lengthy list and it might be overwhelming for people, but I think if you put it all together in like watching for bleeding, change in color, change in stool, change in habits, fatigue. And I found it interesting that you mentioned abdominal pain because my um, initial tell was actually a pain on my left hand side that I thought might've been pancreatic problems. 
And it ended up that my tumor was on the right hand side, just at the top of the ascending and into the transverse colon. So mine didn't even show in a way that seemed um, like it would be a colorectal issue. But I had the fatigue, I had the change of the stool, all of these things that really were were telling. But we just don't talk about this, right? It's not it's not a very sexy cancer. We don't talk. No, about it, it's really not. But it's one of those cancers that if you do actually talk about it, this is something that we can actually prevent with early colonoscopies, screening, and awareness. So you know, the kudos to having this podcast. It's important that people understand that this is something. This is one cancer that we really can make some headway on. Absolutely, I agree one hundred percent. So then, what would be your suggestions? And like, what would you say to somebody who has been have they've had the symptoms, they've gone for screening, they've discovered that they have colon cancer? What would be some suggestions that you might have for them? Well, the first thing that I, you know, I tell my patients is, okay, there's a diagnosis for colon cancer. It's overwhelming. Um, let's stop first and take a breath because once you have the diagnosis, you have to find out exactly how far advanced this is. So there's a staging process that goes uh, along with a diagnosis. Normally, most people have a colonoscopy. There'll be a mass. It'll be biopsied. It'll come back as a cancer. And then they'll need a CAT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis to determine if there's any spread outside of the region of the colon. If there's a rectal cancer, then people will have an MRI. The other type of testing people have is something called a carcinoembryonic antigen level, a CEA level. And that's a baseline blood test that can give you an indication that once the cancer is treated and, and removed, that level should come down if it's not normal and you get that baseline level that you follow every three years for the first two years and then every six months uh, for the next two years and then yearly afterwards, which will give you an indication that the cancer may be coming back. So that's the first thing is to take a breath. It's overwhelming. Pace yourself. Let's get the diagnosis uh, and the staging down pat, and then we can discuss what we need to do. And then you discuss the surgical uh, options at that time. Yeah, I remember being told stage four colon cancer and just everything just went gray. It was just complete fuzz. And so I was so grateful to have my husband there to take in all of that information that was being delivered. I think that's a really important part too, isn't it? To have someone with you. I always tell my patients that, you know, to, to bring someone back, to bring someone with them for the follow-up visit. I mean, I bring everybody back after a colonoscopy because even if they just have simply diverticulosis or hemorrhoids, they're going to have questions. So it's important to ask, to answer the questions and to explain what someone has. But to have a diagnosis of colon cancer, that's something that I believe should be done face-to-face. -face. I think the patient should have some time to digest and understand what has been told. And, you know, when you have two sets of ears, um, you know, to ask questions to absorb, because most people, once they hear that diagnosis, they kind of go blank, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of gray in front of them. They're not really listening. Uh, they can't hear what you say. They think it's automatically a death sentence. And um, it takes a while for that time, for that information to sink in. So I, I discuss things in, in segments to tell somebody all at once what they need to have done, it's overwhelming and it's too much. Yeah, it, it really is a lot. It's a lot to take in. And like, like you said, 
you, you kind of go fuzzy, just kind of shut out the whole world and what's going on around you. Yeah. Um, so on the note of like bringing a family member with you, the, uh, the caregivers, right, have such a big role when someone is diagnosed. And, you know, my husband was my, my caregiver and really he stepped up to the plate and did all of the things, made sure I was exactly where I needed to be when I needed to be and made sure I was at all of the appointments, but there's a lot for them also. So is there anything that um, like family members should know when their significant other is, is diagnosed with colon cancer? Yeah, I think family members um, should know, well, everyone's affected. And, and, you know, you have people who love you, who care about you, who are afraid for you. You may have uh, younger children. So it, when, when one person gets diagnosed, it affects the entire family. And I think family members need to know that the, act, the patient, the one who has the cancer, has to deal with this in their own time, in their own space, and in their own way. Um, and they have to be given the space and the permission to deal with that. You have to give some time to understand the diagnosis, to grieve whatever loss you think you may be having. Your life is going to change. Your work schedule is going to change. Your body may change. Your eating habits may change. Your diet may change. It's a, it's a massive upheaval. Not to mention it, there, there's possible financial strain that may be going on as well when with the loss of of one income with the hospital bills with child care there's just so much that has to go on with a, a significant health change like that in one's life so the family members need to be able to give that individual some space rally around them though but let them deal with this in their own time uh so i also think it's important not to shun them but to have a safe space to talk, a space, a safe space to cry, to share, to emote. And I also tell family members, because I have some families where there's, you know, six or seven, eight members. And I said, you know, you really need to take time out and, and take turns because once the patient is out of surgery and they're home, there's going to be people who are going to need to cook, people who are going to need to clean, people who are going to need to be in the hospital and take them back and forth. So don't burn yourself out. Everyone's got to kind of take a little bit of time and, and parse out the, uh, the roles that if they can. Yeah. That's such great advice, like giving space and then parsing out those roles because it really, it is very, very overwhelming. Um, there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I just kind of, I'd like to circle back around to. So the thing about the emotions that you brought up, my podcast episode last week was called feel all the feels. And it's really about like allowing those emotions to roll through and um, allowing people to cry and not, um, not automatically handing them a tissue, like really just letting them feel that through and have that messy cry and rage. And I shared in the podcast episode, we actually went ax throwing as a family yeah. too, because we just needed that vent, right? We needed that space to be able to allow our feelings to come out in a safe and controlled environment. It was very yeah. fun. It was a good family bonding <laughs> moment. 
all of us it, angry at the same yeah, time. It, it's true. You need to be able to process it in whatever way that you feel comfortable processing it. And you need the time and you need the space and, and you need to be allowed to do that. You know, a lot of people sometimes feel I, I need to be 100% strong all the time. And, and that's just not possible. It's just not real when, when you know, such a, a, a diagnosis such as that is given. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned too about, um, you know, not everybody dies. Right. And that in, and when that word cancer is dropped on the table, it is that automatic because that's what we see in the media, right? That's how it's portrayed in movies. That's how it's portrayed in books. Like it's just cancer patients are always sort of shown as this person who's weak or feeble or, or is destined to die, but that's not true, is it? It's absolutely not. And that's why I'm such a, a stalwart, you know, uh, um, uh, champion for screening colonoscopies, because, you know, if you find that cancer early, you've got a 95% five-year survival rate there. The problem is people are not getting screened and only a third of the cancers are found early, if that. So, yeah, it's important. And that's why education, understanding, people realizing that the screening age is not 50 anymore, it's down to 45, because we're seeing an alarming rate of uh, colorectal cancer in younger patients, which, you know, is, is in and of itself um, unbelievable what we're seeing. So those things are important. Yeah, I didn't realize that I was actually considered a young adult at 43. But that's, yeah. uh, I just recently learned that, which was very interesting. And so, yeah, it's, we are seeing it lower and lower yeah. and it is disconcerting. And um, I'm sure that we could have a whole other episode just talking about oh, absolutely. That, a absolutely. whole other episode. <laughs> um, another thing, just before we move on, it, like you alluded to like the after cancer too, right? Like there is so much for the person when they are in that release from surgical and treatment process of of you said like, your life has changed yeah. and all of these things happen. Like I know I, I am not the same person that I was before it has changed my life and, and it's changed my life in a good way. Like I'm blessed to be able to say, that. but do you see your patients coming back to you and talking about these changes that they're experiencing after cancer? Oh, absolutely. And you know, uh, the, the, when you talk about not sweating the small stuff, when you, when you're faced with such a, a, a grave diagnosis and, and they get through it and people do get through it, people thrive. Yeah. Um, they're still alive. This is one cancer where we can really make a significant difference. And when you're making that difference, you can see my patients come back. They feel a lot more, um, they're grateful for each and every day. They're not sweating the small stuff. They're doing the things that they normally need that, you know, that they may have put off. Um, and uh, they're, they're, they're living life. They're, they're, they're understanding that each day is not promised. And the things that they wanted to do, they're doing the things, the people they need to appreciate, they're appreciating. Mm -hmm. um, it's really changed their outlook. It's significantly changed their outlook. And, um, it's something to be said when you kind of get what you call a second lease on life. You, you take it a little bit more seriously. You don't take things for granted. Um, you are a little more focused. You have a little more intentional in the yes. things you do. Yes. I love that intentional. Yeah. Like really, really intentional about uh, intentional about who you're spending your time with and your energy on and, and doing the things that bring you joy. And like you said, not putting yeah. off the things that 
well, when I retire, I'll do that or someday down the road. It's really, for me, it's been a really beautiful way to embrace life and, and do things I would never have done before and love it so, so much. So you are seeing great success from, I'm the, I want to ask you about the treatment process and, and what you're seeing at your practice. You are seeing success from Oh yeah, we, we have we have a significant number of people um, who are still alive today with colorectal cancer diagnoses and treatments, and even people who have metastatic disease. We have done so much in terms of the support, the the chemotherapy, um, the the new immunotherapies that are out there, and um, surgically, we we've come a long way with minimally invasive treatment, being able to get people in and, and out of the hospital quicker, um, the being able to do lower anastomosis, you know, lower resections and putting people back together, um, trying to uh, sphincter saving procedures when it comes to rectal cancer. So there is so much that's out there now that is really um, making a difference in the uh, the, the diagnosis and, and the long-term care and the aftercare and the survival. That, that patients make if they're treated early, if they're found um, early, and even um, being able to extend their uh, their longevity with metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm right over here, eight years yeah, with eight, metastatic I mean, cancer. Been, and that's, that's, fine. that's phenomenal. I mean, there, there's, there's studies every day that are coming out and, and being able to, the amount of, of, of information we have in terms of um, liver resections and and being able to uh, do lung resections and and for metastatic disease in addition to removing the primary cancer in the colon or the rectum it, it's phenomenal we really have gone a long way that's so good that's so so good I didn't share this with you but um, when I was 22 my dad died of stage four colon cancer so that was really uh, uh, very overwhelming when I was diagnosed and I that was part of my 100% of getting up every day and surviving was because I had, I decided like that was not going to be my story. And then, you know, it was 20 years later. So the advances in medicine between when he was diagnosed and when I was diagnosed, I think made a huge difference in mindset. It, it is, it does make a difference. And also that's important. Like when you talk, bring about your, your family history, it's important for people to understand their family history, for people to talk. A lot of people, like you said, this is an embarrassing situation. They don't want to talk about it and they're hush hush, but it's very important for you to know your family history, especially first degree relatives. Because if you do have a first degree relative, such as mom, dad, brother, or sister who has a colon cancer and they're 50 or younger, you want to start that screening at least 10 years from when they were diagnosed. So it's important for people to know their history and their family history for diagnostic purposes and screening purposes as well, too. Yes. Yeah. And I was 20 years younger than my dad was when he passed. So that listening to my body and really being in tune with that pain that I was telling you about and the changes in my bowel movements, that really the education that you are doing of what people need to be watching for is so important because they, in my term, my case, my timeline was not 10 years, but my awareness was there. And it's important also for your, your children because now they have uh, a mother with colon cancer and they have a grandfather with a history of colon cancer. 
So that's a, that's a family history that needs to be um, recognized. Yes, absolutely. And we've done a lot of educating of, of ourselves and then our sons around lifestyle factors and yes. how important those are. Do you have any thoughts on lifestyle factors? You know, I have a strong opinion on lifestyle factors. And I talk about that a lot with my patients, that um, a lot of the lifestyle factors that we have have been contributing factors, such as not make as uh, such as making sure that uh, you're not living a sedentary lifestyle, getting out, uh, exercising is key, uh, avoiding a high fat, uh, low fiber, red, you know, processed meats. That's important. You want a good high fiber Mediterranean diet. Uh, you want to reduce the amount of uh, alcohol, really everything in moderation, one drink for men, one drink for women. Um, smoking on any level and any type of substance is, is you know, it, it, that's taboo. So there are things that we can do to help ourselves uh, reduce the risk of colon rectal cancer. And even people who have been diagnosed with colon cancer that has not um, spread, if they exercise, that reduces their risk of recurrence 24%. And you don't need to go crazy. It's just 150 minutes of moderate exercise a day or I mean, a week or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise. We're talking gardening. We're talking walking, bike riding, simple things like that. Just dancing, staying active. Those are the things that are going to make a difference in your risk factors and, and your modification of those risk factors. Yeah. And does that apply to recurrence also, like for recurrence prevention? Yeah, exercise. There have been studies that looked at exercise with recurrence prevention. And yes. Yeah, they, they found a significant correlation with exercise reducing the risk of recurrence. Amazing. I think lifestyle factors are just such a big part of the whole, um, I mean, obviously prevention, but yes. then recurrence prevention and, and even changing lifestyle factors as you're going through the process to the best of your ability. Which most people, most people do. I, you know, I, I find it amazing when people get a diagnosis, they've been smoking for 20 years and all of a sudden they stop, you know, that, that diagnosis can really make a difference. And people start to eat right. They start to pay attention to what they're putting in their body. They start to pay attention to exercising and, and getting up and getting off the couch. I mean, we have such a sedentary lifestyle now. All you have to do is use your, your, your smartphone and you can get anything you want. And yeah. now you don't have to leave your house. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And that's, these are the things that I work with with my clients in, in the coaching that I do and in the, um, the uh, program that I run, like really that education around things that you can do that aren't hard. They may feel hard when you're starting them, but they're simple things, like you said, like just going for a walk. And I always start with just drink more water and, yes. and get more fiber in your diet. More water, more fiber, reduce the reduce the, the the sweetened sugary drinks, reduce the soda. All of those things are things that you can do. And not to mention, it helps with heart disease. It helps with diabetes. It helps with those type of preventative measures. So I think a lot of what we have and the sickness that we we experience is it can be reduced, cut in half by just modifying our risk factors. All right, obesity well, that's a huge risk factor. Metabolic disease, yeah. yeah inflammatory diseases. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they heard it from a doctor. You told them what they need to hear. <laughs> we need, <laughs> we have the opportunity to make changes. It just requires sometimes a nudge and just a little bit of education. And it's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. There are benefits if you start today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so 
you alluded to treatment processes earlier. Can you just give us a quick rundown of, of what like a treatment process or plan would look like for a, like this, a standard colon cancer, colorectal cancer diagnosis? Well, it depends, you know, um, what the stage is. Uh, someone who may have what we call a, a carcinoma in situ, that's a, a colonoscopy, and you may find a cancer in a polyp. And if the polyp is completely removed, and that there's a good margin and there's no cancer, residual cancer, then you're treated right then and there. But if there's a cancer or a mass that's too large to be removed endoscopically, then that's when you do the workup with the imaging, with CAT scans, uh, the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, um, blood work, CEA at the CEA level, which I mentioned earlier, the carcinoembryonic antigen level, clearance from your primary care physician to make sure that you're healthy enough for surgery. And most early colorectal cancers are dealt with surgically. And that's the primary mode for treatment is, and usually now we're doing things minimally invasive with laparoscopic, robotic uh, surgery, which has so many benefits of shorter hospitalization stay, less pain, better cosmetic result, and patients are home sooner. Amazing. If there is stage three disease, that's when you're followed up with a medical oncologist and you would deal with chemotherapy. When you're dealing with rectal cancer, there is um, preoperative chemo radio radiation that's being done um, to prepare the, uh, to try to shrink the tumor and um, make things that are a little bit more easier for resection. And then there's whether you decide, uh, depending upon what you find, whether there's any additional ke um, chemotherapy afterwards. And then patients are followed by their, their primary team to make sure if there is a recurrence that it's found early with uh, colonoscopies within the first one to three years after surgery. Because if you are going to have a recurrence, most times it's usually within that one to three year time frame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's definitely um, protocols in place for yeah. everything from early to metastatic. And it, that's yes. just so important. It is. It is. It's 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 a it's a well thought out, stepwise, evidence based um, protocol that we use to treat our patients. And then for those that fall on the outlines, there there's always um, clinical trials that patients may be able to uh, get involved in as well too. Yeah, I have a client who uh, has been doing a clinical trial out in uh, Washington State, and yeah. it's going very well so far. She yeah, she's doing well. So. It's just very interesting. I've learned so much about colorectal cancer just from having actually quite a number of clients that have colorectal cancer and, and they've been educating me about their ostomies and their different types of surgeries and procedures. Yes, yes exactly. Some patients may have may require an ostomy. Mm -hmm. Some of them may be temporary, some um, you know, unfortunately may be permanent. But if it's life saving, then it's worth it. And that's what we talk about. And, and they say that they're just so grateful that it was a life-saving procedure for them and they just learn how to manage it. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's another thing that, that, uh, maybe you, you have to deal with in the, the armamentary of life, but we manage, um, people are really resilient, especially when it comes to cancer diagnoses and, and surviving and thriving. Yes. Yes, that leads so nicely into my last question for you, actually. The last thing I wanted to ask you is, um, what does living to thrive mean to you? It means moving forward. It means uh, being true to yourself, 
respecting the, 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 the journey that you had to go through and um, taking each and every day and trying to live it to its, to its fullest extent. Too many times we say, we'll do this tomorrow or I'll call someone tomorrow. And I know there are times where that tomorrow isn't there for that next person. So just embracing and being grateful for everything that you have and not focusing on what you don't have. Because if, if there's life in your, in, in, your, in your body and breath in your lungs and there's, you can see another sunshine, you can see another day, you can hug your children, you can kiss your spouse or you can be with your family members just every single day. Because I have patients who you know, may not be as fortunate to have a, a lot of time left. And, you know, it's the quality of life that they, they look for at that point in time, just to spend as much time with their family and their loved ones as they can. So just really understanding that we have a limited time here. And if we can make the best impression, the best mark in our life and fulfill the I, I would say, you know, God's purpose or whatever you feel the universe's purpose is your own purpose. That's that's what thriving is to me. Absolutely beautiful. That is just so beautifully wrapped up in a bow as to the whole <laughs> the whole cancer thriver. And really for anybody, like I think it just applies to to anyone yeah. in life that we should all aspire to be thrivers in life. It, it, it does, because, you know, we're all hit with some sort of situation in our lives, whether it, it's cancer, whether it's it's a it's a financial loss or whether it's an emotional loss, a job loss, a, a you know, loss of a loved one or, or whatever situation we're dealing with, how you address it, how you deal with it and how you handle it and your mindset makes a big difference of how you thrive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having that support group, having that that village around you which is why, you know, family is important, friends are important, support groups are important. There are so many cancer survivor support groups. There's so many ostomate support groups um, that your church, uh, local groups and organizations, there's strength in numbers and that's why they're there. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to take advantage of those if they're, if they're available to them. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I agree. Community is yes. truly everything because it can be very lonely. It takes a village. <laughs> it really does. And a great surgeon. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, shout out to the surgeons out there that are saving people's lives, yes. yourself included. Listen, Dr. O'Connor, I just want to thank you so much, truly from the bottom of my heart for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be here on the Living to Thrive with Cancer podcast. It's been a pleasure to meet you. I have no doubt that the people listening here today have taken great value from what you have offered. And I am confident that they will apply some of the suggestions that you've brought in and also just recognize that there is colorectal care out there from prevention all the way through to recurrence prevention and and the role that you play in between all of that so thank you so so much for taking the time to be here today you're more than welcome and thank you for having me and thank you for doing this because it is really important for people to see you and to see you thrive and to see how you've gotten through it and to hear your story because you are an inspiration to so many people 
from the, the beginning of the journey and they can look at you and see where they can actually get to. So thank you. Well, thank you for that so, so much. If you enjoyed this interview with Dr. O'Connor or other episodes that you've had an opportunity to listen to, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review wherever you are listening. This helps me to reach more people like you who are looking for support and guidance and a different way to live with cancer. Hit subscribe and make sure that you follow the podcast so that you can gather the tools and strategies that you can bring into your life with cancer to become a cancer thriver. You are stepping into the world of the exceptional cancer patient, the one that is taking control of their life with cancer, the one who is ready to explore not how this happened, but how to move forward and not stay stuck in the diagnosis, the one who is ready to ask for help. You get to be exceptional and you get to decide. If you are ready to get the support that you have been looking for to explore a not just living life with cancer approach, but learning how to support that life, I would love to share with you my free guide to managing cancer in everyday life. This guide will introduce you to the transformational healing tools that I have personally used to rebuild my life after a cancer diagnosis. Learn more about healing through a holistic approach to the body, mind, and spirit. You can find the guide in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here today. And again, my deep gratitude and thanks to Dr. Lynn O'Connor for joining us today in this very special interview with her and for her bringing all of her knowledge around colorectal cancer to this podcast. I hope that you have a beautiful rest of your day and may you live your life to your fullest, follow your heart and thrive in all you do. 